0: Now you hear it.
1: When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions, height, width, and depth, like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension, time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Claussen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, hey. How you doing, Taylor? I'm doing good. We're gonna be neighbors soon. Um, you know, it's December. It's, uh, it's a beautiful time to be alive. How are you?
0: I'm doing just fine. That's right. Recently, uh, became a homeowner. Haven't moved in yet, but we will be closer than before.
1: Which And be the nice. listeners can pay attention to how hectic you are in the uh, coming up episodes and uh, keep track of, you know, learning that the gutters need to be replaced and how much solar panels cost and all that good stuff.
0: You hear like a lawnmower going in the background. That kind of thing.
1: <laughs> good problems. Good problems. Holiday uh,
0: season is upon us. Year end is approaching. Some last minute catch up for the year is going on. How's all that treating you?
1: It's uh, it's a grind because most of these movies that were the most hailed about, I'd say, like the Small Axe, Mank, I find a little bit underwhelming. Um, then the ones that are untalked about, you know, Steven Soderbergh's let them all talk, end up being um, more more of my darlings at the end of the year. How's, uh, how's trying to catch up going for you? Yes, I would say some
0: somewhat similar. I haven't had anything, uh, you know, jump out of the pack and break into my top 10. But um, yeah, you know, kind of bouncing forth back and forth between some old stuff and new stuff trying to stay fresh that way so more to see hopefully the list will get shaken up a bit at some point
1: I mean once Wonder Woman comes out Christmas Day that's really just gonna upend your entire list so surely <laughs> um, as previously we are doing a rescreening dog day afternoon episode um, but first we're gonna preview our next rescreening episode which is perfect blue from Satoshi Kon who had a kind of a flurry of four of some of the most beloved or renowned anime films in the early 2000s there maybe the late 1990s so let's uh let's give that trailer a view and then discuss it <laughs> All right, Michael, that was the trailer for Perfect Blue. I certainly think I know less now than I did before I went in. What do you think of that trailer?
0: Yeah, not one that gave us a ton of detail about the story that this movie is telling us, but I think it looks pretty cool. Aesthetically, at least I'm... Very excited for it. Um, not only am I really Satoshi con, but I'm also just not that familiar with anime in general. That is just not an area of cinema that I have really delved into before. So it's probably one I would, uh, I'll be better off doing a little bit of homework for more so than our usual re But um, it's, uh, it's fun to do something a little different for sure. How about you?
1: Yeah, I, Also, I'm looking forward to uh, looking at the homework films. Um, I didn't realize Perfect Blue was his uh, first debut film, but right after that, he had Millennium Actress, which I've also heard incredible things about. I believe I saw the follow-up to that, which was Tokyo Godfathers. And then Paprika is something I've been meaning to see forever. So there's three movies right there that sound like great homework. Um, I... I mean, in cartoons or anime, whatever you want to call this, it's really hard to say that like the staging looks good, but that's the truth of it. This mm. does appear to be drawn, the staging of this seems drawn well. Um, just in the brief trailer I saw, I never didn't feel like I knew where that location was, which can be really, really hard in something that is kind of a flurry of animation where you don't really know um, the stakes, but even in a trailer where I don't know exactly what's going on, I still understand where I am in space, which is pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think Tokyo Godfathers is one that's set around Christmas time. So that works out well with uh, holiday season viewing. Um, I yeah, I was actually getting to perfect blue. I'll definitely try and squeeze that one in.
1: We'll just uh, tell our, Our family, that we've got this great little Christmas film. You're going to love it. It's an instant classic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Fun for the whole family. family.
0: Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's
1: podgo.co at podgo.co. Yeah, okay. Let's get right to it. Sydney Lametz. Dog Day Afternoon. For the people of the neighborhood, it was a sideshow. Sonny! Sonny! But for Sonny and Sal, the hostages, and the cops, it was a dog day afternoon.
0: It's all a whim. Rob a bank. I had right? a plan. I, I had it planned. Plan. WNEW plays all the hits. But well, you keep away from this bank or we're going to start throwing bodies out the front door one at a time. I'm a Catholic and I don't want to hurt anybody, you understand? How about letting the people out of the bank? I dare keep me alive, I'm going to let him out. Sir, can you tell me what the situation is? All right, who, who has to go to the bathroom? Sonny, <laughs> come on out! Yeah! It's just a freak show to them anyway. The most you're going to get is five years, you get out in one year, huh? Kiss me. I mean, I don't know about that guy out there.
1: Hello, Sonny. You're on the air, Sonny Jesus! I was watching it on TV. Don't back there, man! I didn't need. Uh, tell me, he needed money. Sick. He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it.
0: Why rob a bank when you got a sucker for a mother? You're starting to get on my nerves. See that? Put it in your
1: holster. <laughs> We're entertainment, right? What do you, what do you, what do you got for us? Halika, Halika. Starring Al Pacino and John Cazale. First, uh, first thoughts there.
0: Big fan of this movie. We did Sidney Lumet's Network a few weeks back, which we both were fans of. I think I like Dog Day Afternoon a little bit better, but uh, uh, both awesome movies. I like what Lumet is doing. I'm a fan. Where are you at with this one?
1: Yes, I I like this more than Network, just like you. Um, I I don't know if this is a perfect five for me, but it's it's really close. Um, Mm -hmm. I I really like the low noise that the film grain had. It it gave a great little layer to um, the griminess of the small corner of New York that we see until the end. Um, And not to put the cart before the horse, but I mean, to climax, show the reaction to our main character from the climax and then instantly hit credits is so cool. Um, I just watched another film from him called *The Pawnbroker*. Literally does the same thing. There's a crucial climactic violent moment. Um, you see the reaction from your main, and then credits roll. And the way that the soundscapes incorporated into this film, um, building up to that, it's just it is truly deserving of of the um, the credit that it receives.
0: Yeah. yeah there is something kind of striking about how for so much of this movie, Pacino is so loud and brash, and then for him to suddenly go completely quiet in those final few minutes just uh, you know taking in what's what's just happened um, it is it, it finishes on a strong note for sure
1: completely but um I mean, as you said he he is the brasher one, but he's also the one that is less menacing which is so oh, yeah. interesting to see um, just how Cazale plays that that part. I think that the reissued Blu-ray that we both got that says Al Pacino above Dog Day Afternoon and then says also starring John Cazale, it's one of the first times I've ever seen, you know, that much effort be put into a reprinted Blu-ray to elevate a, a you know, star in a film but it's, it's completely deserved what he does in his few moments with just his eyes and the way that he moves his shoulders to, to show the burden, um, the way he, that he keeps putting the gun back down and pointing it at the agent in the end. Uh, it's just such a studiously well-played character.
0: Yeah, it's you know, so this came out in 1975. I think at the 1976 Oscars, it had a pretty good showing. I think it only won for screenplay, if I'm remembering correctly. But well, it I'll went
1: watch. up a... Did it go up against the Godfather or was that the
0: not, the, not the Godfather? But there was Cuckoo's Nest. I think Cuckoo's Nest won okay. that year. I think Lumet was nominated for director. There was Jaws in the mix. It was a big year. Barry Lyndon. Um, but uh, the actor who plays Leon, she knows wife. Mm-hmm. Um Chris Randon was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. What's kind of funny about John Cazale is that he's kind of in between lead and supporting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He probably is not helped by the fact that we try to categorize things into leads and supporting for the sake of awards. Um, Because I personally like him quite a bit more than the actor who plays Leon. Um, But uh, yeah, awards are what they are.
1: I don't even feel like you can compare the two there. Um, yeah, that just, I just mean for the sake of that category. Yeah. yeah, that that he's um he's doing something that is just art. Um, you know, it's like it's just raw emotionality. Um, you and I were making a joke earlier, um, which is in reference to uh, a line in Dog Day Afternoon where Pacino asks Cazale, "What country do you want to go to?" I mean, he takes his time, and then he says Wyoming, and. That's, I think, for me, the most memorable part of the film. And from what Mm. I've read, that is the most memorable part of the film. You might be interested to know that was completely improvised. Mm, Interesting. Lumet almost ruined the shot because he was laughing so hard. And he had to cover his mouth. And Pacino barely kept a straight face. The entire thing was improvised. And I believe that there's a few other things that he improvised um, that Lumet said just kind of made everything come together. And Cazale was not someone Lumet wanted in the film. Pacino forced him to audition him. And then it was just his role from then on. And I, I think that this is one of those films where the loud part is only as good as it is because of the quiet part, the quiet violence that's kind of sitting back in the bank. That's the real thing that brings the menace to Pacino's street performance for the crowd.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. We should say that for anyone who hasn't seen Dog Day Afternoon, there's no score whatsoever. There's some music uh, playing at the very beginning of the film, maybe on a radio at one point inside the the bathroom with
1: Maria.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, I think that does give it this very malleable tone, especially in moments like that, because often comedy and tension are playing right alongside each other. And you know, as just as you described, Kazali's character Sal as menacing. He's also like that moment is both funny and sad at exactly mm-hmm. at the same time, and it's revealing. We suddenly realized that uh, he is not just this kind of um, um, mysterious figure in a way who who seems a little unpredictable. We're not quite sure what he's capable of. He's also not the sharpest tool in the shed. Mm-hmm. um and then later we learned he's never been on an airplane before you just get these little um bits of information that fill in who this guy is not the sharpest dude who's maybe never left new york city um uh, and you're both a little frightened by what he might do and you're you just feel a little bad for this guy um mm-hmm. and i think you know the second you play music in a movie you establish a mood and i think by leaving um so much of this movie quiet you let all these kinds of little feelings mingle with each other. It's really, which is really compelling.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened to me. I just didn't think about it in that way. That's that's a great point. Um, in addition, there's a moment where he's um, where Pacino's been knocked to the ground, and the the head teller runs outside and says that uh, Sal's going to start shooting everybody if he doesn't see Pacino that that instant, and that just really resets for me the movie at that point because it had turned into like this comedy showmanship almost uh somewhere the way that lenny the movie lenny that we watched was where it was like this guy's performing for everybody and he's on his own thing and everybody's vibing with him there in the street he's telling cops to put their guns down and then he gets knocked down and beat up And we're reset by someone who's about to kill everybody. If he doesn't see someone. And it's just the furthest thing from my mind in that moment. And it just, it happens in the blink of an eye and uh, it just resets the whole movie, puts it right back on focus. It's like turning the record back over and the music starts playing again after you forget that it stopped.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think their contrast in temperament is one of the most kind of uh, interesting dynamics in the movie where, you know, Pacino, Pacino's Sonny is really, he becomes the showman in a way. He's really the guy mm-hmm. kind of running the show. In the big scheme of things, Sal isn't even really doing that much. Um, he is just kind of this looming threat in, in the background of the bank. Um, and that, that really stark contrast between um, Pacino's just kind of manic, nervous energy and Sal's kind of almost creepy level of calm. Um, is really kind of striking. Like, you so want to know more about these guys' past um, mm-hmm. and what exactly they think of each other. And I think there's just a lot of ambiguity, but little hints that kind of give you a sense of what these guys make of each other. And, um, yeah, it, it's all kind of underneath the surface.
1: Yeah, the uh, they, they have a brief conversation about, you know, did you mean what you said on the phone about dropping bodies and throwing them out the door? Mm -hmm. And that was just, it's such a, a tenuous moment. They they walk such a fine line in the dialogue with not answering each other. They're both talking about two different things, but pretending it's the same thing that they're talking about um, to keep that relationship together in that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And that tenuousness is, I think honestly built out of that first character who leaves the bank, the teenager and hands the pistol Mm -hmm. off. Like that, although it's such a small moment early on kind of sets up the, the tenuousness that you feel between the relationship. I I think of both Sal and Sonny.
0: Oh yeah. That's another moment that brings a little bit of comedy to an otherwise Mm -hmm. completely naturalistic, realistic scene that the third accomplice who only lasts a couple of minutes before he tells uh, Pacino's Sonny that he's out of here. And like the most enthusiastic thing he says is, after Sonny tells him, leave the car, he's like, but how am I going to get home? That's like <laughs> his bigger concern than the bank robbery at a moment. Yes. Um, and it plays as totally real. You know, the comedy doesn't play like jokes whatsoever. This is complete realism through and through. It's all straight. Um, but it, but it's very funny at times.
1: Yeah. And and then he comes back and says, Carol Kane's under the desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, that, that was a great one. Um, I think that, In the documentary that accompanied the uh, Blu-ray copy um, about John Cazale, they interview, like, Sam Rockwell, Meryl Streep, who was partners with Cazale until he died. Um, And one of the people that's interviewed is Philip Seymour Hoffman. And his point about why Cazale is so good, not just in this, but in all five of the films that were nominated for Best Picture, is that he can uniquely play weakness in a beautiful way. He's not trying to play weakness as an actor who's dumbing himself down to be weak, but you can really tell that he's someone strong. He plays himself as as weak as weak can be without trying to have any machismo or or Mm -hmm. macho-ness or masculinity. He's just trying to play the character perfectly. And um, I, I personally found that point, Super apt. I remember um, how convinced I was by him in the conversation. Um, Have you seen the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. So there's that that crucial moment where Gene Hackman's at the um, at the convention and Kazale works for him, but he doesn't know what Kazale does outside of that. And one of his associates, one of Gene Hackman's associates, orders Kazale to go watch The Booth. And he has no idea that Kazale is, has a second job or needs a second job. And the look they have is like one of the most um, magnetic things that, that I can remember out of that film. is just truly stunning. And I think that, that that's maybe what makes this character such a memorable char- character and an actor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, one of the things that makes this kind of one of the definitive movies of the 70s is, is its kind of countercultural appeal or mm-hmm. spirit, this kind of rebellious spirit in both Sunny and Sal. Yeah, these Sunny and Sal are both these very kind of, um, you know, offbeat guys. They're they're um, marginalized figures in a way. Um, they're not the kind of people that classic Hollywood would have told us the story about, but Sunny. Uh, really has this charisma to offset his kind of eccentricity and Sal doesn't have that. Sal is, is kind of just eccentricity through and through mm-hmm. um, with that additional menace. Um, uh, so yeah, t- t- two very different characters, obviously. Um, and, and he, he seems um, even um, more pitiable in a way.
1: Yes, that's a great word. Pitiable. That's exactly yeah. what he is. Yeah. Be- because you realize that you, with that Wyoming line, you realize a lot, you know, mm-hmm. just about his education and, and what he knows. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in a bit of a different pivot, um, this is one of, I think, the better staged um, Lumet films I've ever seen. I, I think 12 Angry Men... is very exceptionally staged but doesn't really have the same knack going for it but here um do you you remember when they have to go block the door in the back door yeah 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 yeah. the the bank manager goes with Sonny to go uh block the back door and they have to um move a a large wooden desk cabinet object and there's
0: (laughs) yeah. <laughs>
1: yes. There you go. There, there's a, there's a heavy piece of um, technology on there. I don't know exactly what it was and they have to heave it up and they have to go put it on a table. And it's so smooth because you see the table that they have to put it on just out of the corner of your eye in the previous scene. So when they set it there, you know exactly where it is. And that those little things just continuously build where they place objects or go places um, that you've kind of seen out of the corner of your eye in the bank and just really turn that space into something lived in, um, which is, you know, this is what Spielberg gets all of his acclaim for, is never confusing the uh, the viewer. You can watch his Indiana Jones movies on mute and never get confused because everything references itself smoothly. And I, mm. I think that Lumet does a superb job here of doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to me, I would describe... A lot of what the camera is, is doing is observational. One real exception to that to me is right after Sonny has released the first hot hostage, which is the security guard, mm-hmm. and there's that really tense exchange between him and Moretti, the cop, because he was supposed to let out a, they were expecting a woman, so they mistake him for one of the robbers. robbers yeah. And the camera suddenly takes that like over-the-shoulder shot because um, Sonny's right at the door. And they're having this back and forth between them. It's getting super heated. It's really one of the only moments that suddenly feels like a more like a Darden's almost kind of realism because it's really putting you in that exchange versus yeah. the camera usually playing more of just this kind of um, third party observer function. Um, that's one of my favorite moments where it seems to really be placing you in the middle of that exchange, which is pretty fun.
1: Yeah. It ups the ante on the 10, the tenuousness once again, there it, it, um, you feel the volatility in a really mm. um, instantaneous way that w- when it's more a landscape or, or a moved third person, like you're saying, you don't feel the um, the gravity of the consequences quite so much as you do in that tight close-up moment. Um, mm. And I think that there's maybe a handful of other moments like that. I think that certain moments in the final drive feel very tenuous. Mm. Um and uh, the moment where they're back by the blocked door and he fires his gun, the camera gets mm. really close up on his shoulders and he kind of sticks the gun at the window and fires. And from that angle, you don't know what's outside the window. And if he's shooting mm. someone. So until they go to that reverse shot, it's, um, yeah, it's very dramatic consequences. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and on the note of, on the topic of that scene where Sonny fires the gun because he realized they're trying to come in through the back, um film was edited by D.D. Allen, who I think most famously also edited like Bonnie and Clyde and worked with mm-hmm. Lumet on a couple other films. But I think that's one of the best moments of editing in the film where there's suddenly this really fast cutting between the inside and outside of the bank, as well as the back of the bank, um, which is some just some of the fastest cuts I think you get in the film. And the uh, the immediate yeah. sense of chaos and how compelling that is, is really awesome. Um
1: I, I will yeah. say that when, when Sonny throws the money, I think something like that happens too, where oh, yeah. the, the cutting gets really frenetic and the, the crowd is, you, you don't really know which side of the crowd you're looking at because everything's kind of from, everything is staged from the perspective of being inside the bank as the criminal with Sonny. And in that moment, the way that the supercuts work is you end up thinking that you're just in the crowd and you don't know where you are. It's kind of chaotic and I, that's super effective there as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, yeah. N- no score, but still beautiful ambient sounds. Um, well, ambient might not be the right word, rather realistic sounds, um, some Foley work. Uh, Would you think of the, the sound design on a whole?
0: Uh, I think it's a great sounding movie. It's all very, very lived in and authentic. I guess authentic is the word that comes to mind. Um, especially when, more so even when you're outside, I think, because you're just hearing the clamor of people as this turns into a circus. You're hearing the, you're hearing the helicopters. You're hearing just the sounds of people yelling or chanting one moment in the way you just can follow the temperature of what's going on outside all kind of just based on the noise alone is, is very compelling. Um, one of the, Things I read was that you know they obviously hired a bunch of extras to um, you know fill out the the crowds outside the bank, but then they ended up having just natural um, audiences show up who ended up actually exceeding the number of um, extras that they had just that they had meant to hire, and you know it kind of makes you wonder about how much just natural. Uh, how much of that natural noise is coming from the fact that these people were just real people excited to see this this bank robbery being staged? Just kind of fun.
1: Yeah, that those few uh, few films in time where there's a little bit of lightning in the bottle from the people that want the movie made as well as the people making the movie together. That's awesome. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, like I think I I think I read that little Met, Like, well, the crew obviously said like to people living in the immediate vicinity, like on the block, like obviously we're going to shoot here. Like, you we'll put you up in a hotel. So you're not disturbed. And some people are like, "Nah, we'll stay. We'll check this thing out. Which is <laughs> awesome. I love that.
1: Yeah. Um, so h- how many lament films have you seen now?
0: Only three, I think. Three? I've seen this. I've seen Network and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, do you notice any patterns for you as a viewer of like what exactly his thing is? Um,
0: I, I mean, I guess I can just, dis- I would describe it as kind of a workman like I did would, it's, uh, this is maybe repetitive, after what we talked about when we talked about network, but it, it is not a particularly flashy kind of direction. Um, I think he is really a actor's director, in a way, he's interested in trying to pull the best out of them and really letting them be what holds your attention more so than his sort of camera signature um but uh i don't know i'm hesitant to really say that i think that's his 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 thing or that's what it is because that's i've still seen such a tiny fraction of the filmography i'm sure there's stuff that's just great camera wise that i'm probably just not aware of what about you
1: well i mean to be honest i i think he would say as well that he's a he's a workman's director and the the greatest compliment you could pay him is that he makes actors you know, the center of his film. Um, And because that's kind of the object of the screenplay. And if the objective is to make the script or screenplay come to life, then that means he's doing it in many ways. Um, I just had watched The Pawnbroker. Broker. Um, We'd done Network. And I've noticed that the films that he makes that are especially about men, I watched a Sean Connery film that I'm forgetting the name of from the 60s, I think, um, where he plays a detective as well is the, the ones that center on men, it's kind of men that are at a midpoint in their lives that have a have a weight. And then they're introduced into a, a circumstance that begets a climax. And then they reckon with the the consequence of that climax. And then the film ends. That's that's like his thing over and over and over and over and over. Um, In The Pawnbroker, the exact same finale sequence, like I said, credits roll over New York as um, the man continues to reckon with what just happened. The same thing happens here in Dog Day. I believe the same thing happened in that Sean Connery film. Um, Network's a little bit different, but it's still the consequences arrive, and then you have to take those home with you. Um, I think 12 Angry Men, the consequences arrive uh, on, the, on the verdict. Um, the only one that, that that wouldn't apply to is the Catherine Hepburn film, um, Long Day's Journey Into Night. So I, mm. I, I do think that he's a man who's kind of sitting in his own um, wondering of consequences more than, um, more than before I done all this homework and we watched Dog Day. I didn't really think that he was ever trying to say something or that he had something he was always repeating. But um, now on reflection, I do think that that is maybe the main motif of him.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I have more to see. Uh, 12 Angry Men would probably be at the top of my list of ones to see next. it's um, just had such a long career, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I forget how many movies he's made, but it's, I don't know. Large, just when I was cursorily quickly glancing at it on Letterboxd and to see um, how that's evolved um, over several decades. You know, I think um, this is such a uniquely 70s kind of movie, but I think he also really has old Hollywood in his blood in a way. If you probably go back to his earlier stuff, Um, interesting to see how the style has evolved.
1: Yeah, um, I totally blanked on it, but. Before the devil knows you're dead. That's exact. That's a film about consequences, right? More than anything.
0: That is one I have seen. That's one I don't remember all that well. I remember liking it quite a bit, but um, I I couldn't say much about the the style there.
1: That's that's a great revisit. Any listener that hasn't seen it or hasn't seen it in a while, that's a that's a truly wonderful film. I highly recommend uh, revisiting it or watching it for the first time. Um, his. His early Hollywood work, though, was very um, unconventional. Not something that everybody really liked. Uh, I, I think that the most mainstream film he ever made was *Murder on the Orient Express*, and. Oh, yeah. Even the way that he made that was very unconventional and upset like every single producer that he worked with uh, <laughs> because he, he refused to not use a real train. So everybody had to go over to a totally different country to shoot one scene one day that they only had one shot at and it almost all fell apart. Um, there, there's great stories behind most of his movies. Um, so I, I do think that he's an interesting part of old Hollywood, but I don't think he was really mainstream accepted. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of more of a Robert Altman that always got away with it.
0: Oh yeah. Speaking of Robert Altman, I think Nashville was one of the other ones that came out that year. I think 75 had a number of high profile titles. Oh wow. Nashville was one of the other ones. Yeah. That's
1: that's amazing. Um so on on either side of of Dog Day was Murder on the Orient Express and then Network. So he was right in the midst of kind of his his big um releases there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um Supporting cast here is, I think, incredible. I believed every single moment and I was awestruck that Carol Kane was Carol Kane.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, One of my favorite scenes is the one time we like, or there are a couple shots where we go somewhere else other than the bank. We go to his ex wife's place where we see where she lives with her kids, but we Mm -hmm. also see his mom and dad's house at one point point. and in that like 20 seconds or so i think you know everything you kind of need to know about his mom dad and i the woman who i think is his sister his mom's emotional watching the screen she's the concerned parent she's worked up she's upset the sister's kind of laughing she's amused by her brother's antics and the dad's annoyed the dad's the uh, disapproving father and it's such a short shot they're all perfect in just that brief little moment Um, I love those kinds of supporting roles that are truly so brief. Um, but you but you learn so much in just a a short span of time. Totally with you.
1: Yeah. But they're, um, I, I think what makes them even better is the way that they're accentuated by the earlier portion of the film where the, uh, our our leads here are kind of talking around their history, making you more interested and want to know more. And then you finally get those little glimpses and you see that they're just normal average Joes and Jills, just nothing really unique about them. Um, And, and then, you know, the sexuality aspect, which I think is probably what this film's most notable for comes to fruition. And even then, you know, um, right after the crowd is chanting, you know, offensive remarks a uh, new crowd joins um, mm. in, in coalition with him so it, it really does feel like a, a movie that's just about everyday people and i don't know of another bank robbery film that feels quite like that from this period i would say before the devil knows you're dead is another robbery film that feels very much about your average joe um mm. but not 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 from this period of time does something feel so just about everybody.
0: Yeah. It's kind of funny that you so often hear of it described as a great New York movie, because you don't see that much of New York. You're mostly at the bank for like 90% of it. And then we're at Mm -hmm. the airport. That doesn't really count. Uh, And we're at a couple other places, but it's just because of the people I think. Um, And just kind of the energy of the place and kind of, Uh, the willingness to to kind of look at the grit of it rather than to romanticize it that just you know again gives it that kind of authenticity that you really believe you're in new york
1: yeah in addition to that there's there's the moment where leon is explaining the institution that he was just in Mm. and rather than take us there we're allowed to have the image painted for us and I don't know about you, but I, I began to imagine w- what that condition was like for him. So even though I wasn't shown that part of New York, I felt like I was there. And that consistency of feeling like you're there of, oh, that's just the insurance broker across the way. He's, he's only looking in on us because there's a fire. That just feels like it could be any part of New York. That could be any borough or, or corner or whatever.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you can totally imagine how if there was some kind of um, over-involved producer behind this in a different time, a different studio, when it finally comes time to let us in on the motivations behind all of this, that it's for uh, a gender reassignment surgery, you could imagine the flashbacks that they would put in there Mm -hmm. to to just explain it all to us so that there's no no ambiguity to it or anything like that. And you're absolutely right. Getting to picture the wedding and and the, the rowdiness of that and these scenes where Pacino's character was abusive and going nuts at Coney Island. Uh, that's that's oh, a, yeah. another one where I'm that's a great Coney Island um, and him screaming at her to get on some weird, I forget what the ride was, but screaming at his wife to get on a ride.
1: While the kids uh, are already like stuck on the ride with like the bar over their waists or whatever. So they can't get up because their parents are yelling at each other. So like they're just stuck in that awkwardness.
0: <laughs> totally. And then they're, they're back in the car and she sees a gun in the glove box um the picture is in your head and that's all you need it's great
1: i i mean just while we're talking about the writing um the writer here is frank pearson and the same year he wrote this i believe he also wrote a star is born um but a star is born didn't come out till later um i think it came out like a year later but i think he wrote both at the same time um Obviously, A Star Is Born was an adaptation of A Star Is Born, and this is an adaptation of a magazine article. Um, but still, he he just kind of had one great burst of, of cinema right there. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think he really captured two different sides of America in that version of A Star Is Born and this one, kind of the the just average everyday person and the um, the hopelessness side of um, some of those more depressed normal people that that aren't you know the billionaires that we hear uh, sunny railing about
0: <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um yeah just kind of the absence of any glamour or romance again just kind of seems to, to um, represent the the aesthetics that we think of when we think of american 70s cinema for sure
1: um in this film more than others i'd watched up to this point Lamette's ability to build atmosphere through the character and using a close-up really came back to me. I think that he did this really effectively in Twelve Angry Men as well. Um, Long Day's Journey into Nights has has moments of this, but Dog Day really just sprays down in that last third their faces. They're just mm-hmm. beads of sweat. And whenever you get that smothering lens close-up, you just mm-hmm. feel the the exhaustion and the hunger and and the, uh, the confusion and, and all the emotionality that um, you didn't really have before. I think that it was building up pretty effectively in the background. But t- to really bring it out, they made it look like realistic sweat. And then they mm-hmm. put those great close zooms up. Um, especially when Azale is like, trying to get the hair out of his eyes. And it's all you know um, kind of matted down from the sweat. Um, it just really brings another level of reality and grittiness to a film that's already pretty gritty and real.
0: Yeah, at the start of the film, Pacino's walking into the bank with a suit jacket on. He's got a tie, it's buttoned up all the way. By the time you're at the end, he jacket is off, obviously. Ties out, shirt's unbuttoned, sleeves are rolled up, drenched in sweat. And,
1: Band-aid uh, on the forehead.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. A nice touch. Um, I think of when he's. Um, Reading the will and having one of the, um, women bank clerks, um, write it out for him. She's just drenched in sweat. Oh, yeah. Kind of cutting back and forth between her writing it and him, um, reading it or, 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 or saying it out loud. Um, yeah. Night and day difference from, uh, the, their look at the beginning of the film. Things have gotten hot.
1: The the other most uh, or the other thing that I found most effective personally was watching Sonny have to threaten to kill these people and hold them as hostages while simultaneously seeking medical treatment for them and trying to keep them alive. In the mm-hmm. case of the security guard and the bank teller, the failing health of those two characters creates a totally different level of stakes in reality than any film that just comes to the top of my head. This general type of a bank heist thing, you know, you think of like maybe some of the more modern, truly great ones like hell or high water. And there's just not an ounce of this type of realism to it. It's more about Mm -hmm. the glory heroic saga shootout finale. It's not about the, I got in over my head and now everything that's real just keeps happening. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a diabetic who's going to die. There's a a security guard without asthma who can't breathe and what to do about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really kind of funny that he is not Pacino, I mean, or Sonny's character, Sonny, the character of Sonny, is not totally inept. Like, he has done his research and he knows certain things about the bank. He knows to, you know, slip something underneath the little lever in the register before he pulls all the money out. But it's just not a polished heist at all. Um, and, well, that's because
1: Rick gave him the wrong delivery day.
0: That's true. First of all, there's he's not walking away with much, no matter what. Um, but uh, I, I like I, I love the like just how dumbfounded he looks when the bank manager has the phone and he says it's for you. for you and he's like somebody knows I'm here. The look on his face like that's one of my favorite reactions in the movie. He's that's the uh oh moment. This is going south.
1: One hundred percent. The the zoom in, just the lens up to the barbershop window when he mm-hmm. hops on the phone. Oh my! That's like a a stomach drop moment where you're like, you just jumped off the the bungee jump and Mm -hmm. your stomach's in your throat.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I, I like that one. There's another shot of Pacino right after he's gotten off the phone with his ex wife, I think. And it's just close up and he's got both of his hands up on his face and he is Mm -hmm. just like exhausted. Like he is just ready to like, just call it quits. And uh, yeah, it's it's just such great performance exhaustion in that face, just wanting to like pull his cheeks down.
1: You're talking about the scene where the EMT doctor is standing up looking at him, right?
0: Yeah, just about to say we need to get this guy out of here. Exactly
1: right. So I, I don't know about you, but in that moment, I didn't know what was happening. And I thought that the rug was about to get pulled out from under them and the bank manager had died. Because I didn't know what what happened while he was on the phone. So if he would have died, then they would have lost their entire ability to negotiate, quote unquote. And the stakes in that moment after having that phone call and then seeing that the news might be that the manager died and now everything's crumbling, was it it was one of the more emotional, silent moments of the film for me where I was just truly... um, uh, in in uh, a caught in the middle of the ocean i had no idea what was going to happen next
0: oh yeah things were already bad enough but at that point you're probably expecting things to spiral out of control at a even faster rate
1: yes and then the manager continues to to be you know kind of silently heroic and chooses not to uh, leave, and then instead of taking the next out, he has one of the uh, the clerks leave. He, he's a great little background character that's just constantly um, making interesting choices, both as a performer and as a written character. Um, I I love the, the line that he says as they're blocking the door. I'm salary. I'm not going to risk my life for this. Bang. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he's really funny. And yeah, I think so many of the women are, are hilarious. There's the, the one, uh, like head. The head teller is so good. She has like a, you know, the strongest backbone of anybody. Um, she's not going to leave her girls. She's great. I like the girl who kind of has the like tight Brown curls and she's chewing gum when she's, um, asked to go into the vault and, Mm -hmm. and, and open it up and whatnot. And she immediately starts crying. Um, J- just, just, just so real that shot of her just chewing gum because yeah, why wouldn't she be chewing gum? It's so, so striking in that moment, these little details, they're all great.
1: Completely. Um, The, the head bank teller, her, her interaction with the FBI agent when the FBI agent comes in and she's like, where the hell is the airplane? We've been waiting for hours. And he, he says that it's just going to be a couple more hours. She just can't believe it. What are you doing? What's the holdup? Get them the plane. It's um, I I think that watching the tellers and the bank manager eventually be on Sonny and Sal's side. In addition to the entire crowd is um, I think what at the center of this film makes it last in as such a durable film and what makes it so interesting that these are heroic characters, not just to the audience, but to the people participating as victims in the bank and the crowd in the neighborhood around them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think one of the things I read was that one of Lumet's motivations for trying to improvise when he nor- ordinarily wouldn't improvise was that he thought it might uh, suggest a kind of bonding between Pacino and all these different characters who otherwise would, would never be bonding. And I think that really works. And I think the turning point is um when they all hear that uh, he was, was doing this for a gender reassignment surgery for his wife, um, and then you start to get some of those little scenes where they're just passing the time and Sonny is showing a girl how to kick the rifle up and do a little move with it. They're just sitting around having pizza. Um, there's suddenly this kind of camaraderie, um, even though it's you know a very kind of relaxed camaraderie because there's nothing to do. Um, but there does seem to be this this weird little bond, sense of bonding between them um, that I think, for me, culminates in like what's what's easily my my favorite moment in the movie, where I because it was just so unexpected, which is where the girl who's named Maria at the mm-hmm. end gives um, Sal her like beaded necklace because it as just a gesture of kindness because he's afraid of flying. Uh, Good luck just, for again, his first flight. Exactly, just the a perfect little signal of the fact that these people have come to care about each other a little bit, um, and it's not sentimental at all. It's just totally real. It's so small. I love that moment.
1: I the thing about that that makes it work so well, like you said, is that it's small. There's an mm-hmm. equally great moment where she pulls her hand away from the negotiator um, or the head. Teller pulls her hand away from the lead negotiator and goes back in with Sonny because she's not going to leave her girls in there, Um, Mm -hmm. which demonstrates to everybody. The news is still filming at that point. The crowd's still there that these guys aren't that bad, which I think is like crucial for the build, but it's not as quiet and as delicate as that moment because we don't know in the film what's been happening other than what, What we kind of follow Sunny. So we don't know what Sal and Maria or any of the other girls have been doing or talking about. So Mm -hmm. it's, it really just cements that extra bit, um, in in a really beautiful way. Um, the precincts, um, all conjoining on that one area and the, lead negotiator having no idea what's going on and having to constantly bark commands to holster your gun, I think is the other um, fine line of comedy and realism. And if Mm. they would have had a laugh track going or, you know, any, um, sort of a cue that tells you this is funny when he's telling the officers to put their guns down, it would have totally ruined it. But the way that it's played, it's just perfect realism. And you really feel like he doesn't have control of the situation and he's mm-hmm. trying so hard and it makes it so humorous, but you can't laugh because you're filled with dread at the possibility that one of the cops is about to shoot.
0: Yeah, yeah, you, you have some tension both inside and outside because on one hand, you're not quite sure what Sal might do because he just seems like a, like a question mark in a way. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it just seems like any one of the cops at the moment might just fire. Um, it, it just feels Absolutely. like they're, they're, they're all just on, you know, a knife's edge ready to do something. Um, it's funny to me that like this thing is like, it, it they they have this place totally encircled. There's so many cops, there's such a crowd, and one guy still manages to just sprint right in and tackle Sonny, which again just shows me like they Maria's do boyfriend. Not really have this place locked down. Um, uh-huh. if someone could just walk right in and knock him over, um, yeah,
1: yeah, and and if you don't know what's happening on the, the back side of the building,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, yeah, I think the other main, um, cinematic, thematic moment for me is when the power gets knocked out because they don't really scream and shout like they would in a modern movie. Like, oh, the power's out. It's like everybody just kind of has a reaction shot inside Mm -hmm. the bank because the emergency lights go back on. So there's still lighting for the the film, but everybody kind of is coming to, like waking up and going, okay, what do we do now? And it totally... I think foreshadows what happens in the finale of the film in the climax. Um, and in just a really subtle, deliberate pointed way with the control, the, the literal power is gone now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have to pivot a little bit just to bring up a, a new thought, but, um, I just think about kind of the erasure of lines between good guys and bad guys in this movie. Um, especially as Sonny's character is really a charismatic type, and I do find myself very much on his side up until this point at which he's sort of un- unconsciously betraying Sal in a way. He's not actively um, you know colluding with the police, but he, he knows they're, they're, they have something in mind for, for Sal in a way. and mm-hmm. and, and, he's, and he's not transparent about it. Uh, which, again, just just speaks to this kind of ambiguity about their relationship and what they mean to each other, um, which I, I just find really rips. Like, that's the kind of question I'll find myself continuing to, to think about is he's kind of saved his own skin maybe in this somehow because he's, he's walked away from this alive. Um, but every everything after the FBI agent says we'll take care of Sal and Sonny's not letting sal know about that is is obviously another turning point uh, you know one of a few in the movie um and that, that that feels like one of the richer ones just because of the ambiguity around it
1: i yeah i completely agree i for me that build starts when they begin to talk about the dual suicide and pacino doesn't want to go down that route yet he still thinks there's an out and that kind of introduces this idea that um Pacino's going to save his own skin, but let Sal go out thinking that they are going to do what Sal thinks they should. It's this mm-hmm. really fine line, um, that, that is even introduced before that, when they're having that conversation about, uh, dropping the dead bodies out the door. Cause I'm ready to do it. Um, mm-hmm. and just that, that slow build, it's, it's a, it's a, membrane of the story that is always taking place in the background until that crucial moment that you bring up. Um, and it has small moments where it goes above the water, but it's just always there in the background. And then in that final moment, as shocked as you are that he's been shot in the head, you're also not shocked. And you're yeah, not shocked yeah. that, um, that Pacino isn't trying to get the gun to fight back. You're not mm-hmm. shocked at all that he's just completely capitulated. And the build for that, I think is one of the most deft and clever things that the film pulls off.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, it's a weird ending. It kind of seems like fatalistic in a way, like it was just bound to happen. Um, And yeah, the way it just seems to kind of end with a dot, dot, dot or something like that um, leaves you very unsettled um, in a way that is very not like classic Hollywood.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, very interesting, too, in that this is based on a quote-unquote true story. It's based on a magazine article about a real event, real people. Um, you've even seen the end credits that he's incarcerated for 20 years in a federal prison. You know all of that's true, but there's a separate thing you wonder, which is about these imaginary characters. Mm-hmm. And they feel very real, and they're more interesting than the real characters and few, few films pull that off where the imaginative characters become more interesting and more meaningful than the characters that they're actually based on.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Um, I guess I'll say, not that I really want to criticize anything, but I guess I would say that the maybe the one thing I do have a little bit of trouble believing is just the relationship between Leon and Sonny. I don't know why I have a little bit of trouble in that conversation where they finally have their phone conversation, totally believing the romance and chemistry that they supposedly once had. I do very much believe it. Once Sonny is relating his will and he talks about loving him more than any man has ever loved anybody. I've been Hmm. totally believe that maybe it's something about the guy who plays Leon that, so that's it. kind of leads me to think maybe that's it. But, um, I don't know. That's, that's one thing that I had a little bit of trouble totally buying, I guess. Any I, thoughts on that.
1: I think I do too. Um, I, I think I specifically have the issue with the Leon character, not with the believability on Pacino's side, because Pacino is, is in the midst of wearing all the hats and bearing all the, the thinking on his, his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And we've just found out that he's emotionally abusive. Um, so, and we found out that he is the reason why this has occurred and and why the attempted suicide has happened that that Leon attempted. So, we totally believe that he's this abusive character. It's just that the way Leon plays it isn't or the way that that the Leon character is played doesn't really feel real in that way and there, there's a few different ways it could have gone because um, supposedly recovering from um, whatever medication uh, mm-hmm. they were put on when they were in the um, the mental institution but mm-hmm. the the part isn't played groggy. the part isn't played really clear-eyed or uh, objective. it's it's a very middle of the road part that doesn't have a sincerity to it um, mm-hmm. and then halfway through just becomes, trying to get information for the cops. And none of it felt particularly real. What felt the most real about it was the, the stuff that Pacino's Sonny was bringing to the table.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. It's maybe, yeah, it's like, I'm not sure I totally see any affection that Leon ever had for Sonny, necessarily. I, it's much easier for me to see Sonny's affection for him, deep love for him, is because of what he says in The Will. I don't know. I have trouble seeing the other side of it a little bit. Um, yes,
1: I completely agree. I'm glad that that's yeah. not just me. Cause I, I didn't quite track. I found um, his ex-wife a lot more communicative and clear eyed mm. in the exact situation.
0: Totally. Totally. That one's much. Yeah. Very believable.
1: Yeah. Um, I think we're probably at the end there. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we do favorite scenes? I don't
0: think so. We've covered a lot of uh, what I think I wanted to talk about. Let's do favorite scenes, unless we've already talked about them.
1: Um, well, even if we have, it's it's how we end. Um, mm. <clears throat> I, I will personally go with where the soundscape is the loudest. I really think that climax where the jet pulls up, and the roar as it's turning and it screeches, just that, that front tire screech as the engines are revving as it turns. Um, it is a perfect build up to when the power goes out. You have this looming sense of dread that something terrible is about to happen. And I, for one, didn't know what. Um, and then you see that great shot of the close up with the door handle and the uh, taxi being pulled down, see the pistol. You have a few seconds, maybe 15 seconds before the pistols grabbed in the way that that, uh, cut edit happens. And it is just a, a great long, um, scene there. Um, it's, it's a short scene, I guess, but the, the stakes and everything that, that it just really hit home for me. I'm not going to forget that moment and the soundscape that made it so, um, iconic for me so so memorable
0: I completely agree totally with you there uh well since I already mentioned the moment where Maria gives her beads to Sal before getting on the plane I'll I'll just go with something different which is the pizza delivery oh yeah that's right at you know Sonny throws some cash into the crowd and that gets him riled up but right after Sonny goes back inside the pizza guy shouts I'm a star and jumps up and down and I think that, that perfectly echoes kind of the broader theme, which is about these two guys, Sonny and Sal, who are kind of these marginalized eccentrics. Um, and Sonny especially gets his moment in the spotlight for these brief moments. Every time he walks out of the bank, he gets the mic. He has some control. He has some power in this situation. And otherwise, he's just an unemployed vet. And um, this guy is usually just a pizza guy. But for this moment, he's a star and he loves it. Um, so that idea of little people having their their big moment, I think, is pretty fun.
1: I 100% agree with you. That's a great moment. I, I loved it quite a bit. Um, on that note, let's end it. And uh, Next month, we'll get to Perfect Blue.
0: Looking forward to it. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't.